We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello and welcome to The Interruption, the Global Institute for Tomorrow podcast. Today we'll be taking a closer look at the global food supply system, how we source food, consume it, and even waste it. Importantly, we'll also discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on our global food outlook, and why, in the age of pandemics, the world cannot afford to overeat. As usual, I'm at the Gift Headquarters in Hong Kong with Chandra Naya, and this is an interesting locale to discuss food supply. Given that Hong Kong generates only 0.1% of its GDP from agriculture, yet there isn't ever a food shortage, even in times of pandemics. This might sound promising, but reports from research institutions across the world point to the fact that over 250 million people face food shortages and starvation, while future projections claim that we may need up to 50% more food by 2050 to feed the world's population of 10 billion. So, Chandran, food security is clearly an issue. How concerned should we be about these numbers? Yeah, this is a, this is a, a good topic. Um, when we talk about food security, uh, we need to be sure that we do not um, confuse global food security issues and think about the global population as one mm. and locality-specific needs. So um, the World Food Program is, is right to bring uh, attention to the fact that they estimate that this year something like 265 million people are going to be suffering from food insecurity issues, etc. But we need to understand what are the root causes of the, this. Uh, so we need to be concerned, but we need to, what, what, what do we need to be concerned about? It's less about the, the numbers clearly are real people in real part, different parts of the world. But the, the fundamental issue is not that we don't have enough food on the planet. Mm. Um, and I've just written a piece which I believe the, the World Economic Forum will be, will be publishing today, uh, uh, which shows that, I, and most people, unless, uh, uh, most people know that uh, we, the world produces enough food so the problem is not that we don't grow enough food. The problem is where is it grown, uh, who consumes it, and very importantly, how much is wasted. So where there is food, uh, a huge amount is wasted, and that, uh, that speaks to the broken economics of essentially the entire production, distribution, consumption, and pricing mechanisms of food. And then we have the unfortunate reality that in certain parts of the world, because of failure of government policies, but also because just of the, the, um, the, the climatic conditions and a host of other factors, people don't grow enough food. Um, the point I try to make very clearly, though, is that uh, when these projections are made, we need to be careful about what we're talking about. On one hand, uh, I call it uh, the sort of plague of gluttony mm. that is now engulfed mm. the world, uh, where people eat so much, uh, mainly because of the, 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 the cost of consumption of food is so low, and that is the economic uh, 
system that is broken that I, that I talk about. Uh, so whilst people consume so much, uh, there is uh, the, the unfortunate tendency of uh, the agencies to study all of this uh, to look at a norm of consumption that uh, I would say uh, essentially reflects what markets deem as growth, um, uh, growth projections for food that is then linked to uh, Western sales of consumption or what advanced ec economies mm. uh, individuals consume per capita. But if you factor in that these, uh, these consumption rates essentially are, are based on huge amount of wastage because it's underpriced, then we have a different way of looking at this, this problem. And I'll, I'll try and finish up by basically asking the, the, the listener to think about these, these things. We're being told that the, we need to grow 50% more food. I argue that 50% increase in food is based on a per capita consumption, which is a reflection of the gluttony that is evident around the world, the gr growing gluttony. That is not being factored into by saying people need to e eat less when we look at what is an average global consumption of what sort of food. On the other hand, um, that 50% increase is based on also saying that, uh, and, uh, being aware that the global population is going to increase by 20 to 25%. Mm. So why in a world where we already know we grow a lot of food, uh, wastage uh, is in some areas from farm, uh, farm gate to essentially plate is anything like uh, 40 to 50% depending uh, in which part of the world you, you're in. Why would you, for an increased population, increasement in population size of 25%, need to grow 50% more food? And my argument would be, it essentially assumes people have a right to eat as much as possible, which is essentially the neoliberal economic policies, and then also the social structures that say people should have what they want, which has resulted in the sort of pandemic of obesity and all of that. Uh, without suggesting, but well, we have to actually curb that. Those are much more difficult policies. But then they say we need to grow more food. So I would argue, yes, 25% uh, increase in the world's population is the estimate. Um, we grow enough food today for the world. It's not distributed. Mm. So much of it is, is wasted. Uh, we need to scrutinize these, this sort of uh, data which suggests we need to increase food production by 50 um, and then, then we can have di different discussion about the fact that if we simply grow more food, uh, we will contri contribute to massive biodiversity losses. We will contribute on, under current agriculture, industrial agriculture processes, massive contamination of land, water, and of course climate change. So those are fundamental issues need to be factored into any calculation that looks at how much food we need. And that in return, in turn, must reflect on the sort of um, uh, blind eye turned to the fact that the underpricing within the economic model for food production has resulted in the obesity mm. ex uh, explosion. Sure. So if we take a look at some of the statistics, Americans supposedly <coughs> waste up to 60% of the food that's on their Only plate. Only 60? <laughs> Europeans, it's, it lies around 50%. 50, yes. That's right. Um, but in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, it's only 5%. And in Southeast Asia, it's only about 13-15%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. So 
what does how does this relate to food the global food production industry and the fact that say for example countries like Malaysia and Indonesia have progressed towards uh, cash crops and the production of palm oil for example as a, as a monoculture crop to sell rather than producing their own food how does how do how do these these systems interrelate well the first thing that we should realize we're looking at those numbers 60% food wastage mm. at the consumption stage uh, stage in the US 52% in Europe and in the low teens in Southeast Asia, only 5%. It, what it does show is that essentially food is so cheap relative to essentially the, uh, the, the, the ability to consume in the United States that people just overeat. And, uh, and without wanting to be unfair to Americans, uh, I think all of us who are non-Americans who go to America and look at the portions, uh, I think either disgusted or shocked at mm. one. And then that's reflected in the large amounts of people who are, are, are not just overweight, uh, you know, clinically obese. Uh, you don't find this much. But that disease has now crept to other parts of the world. So India now has its problems, China, not amongst the poor people, but amongst the, the middle class uh, especially. So uh, two things. The average in Southeast Asia of 13% reflects the fact that food is not overproduced to the extent that it essentially becomes something that is so disposable that you can consume in so many different forms. And I think all of us know that the ability to convert corn into junk food is essentially at the heart of the problem of the, uh, uh, of the world, and particularly in the United States, and creeping into the USA, Australia, etc., and now in, in, into Asia. So that is one part of it. Just so cheap, so much industrialized. Mm. But for the rest, but these, uh, but in the poorer countries, there are a lot of people who don't have access to enough food. And the threat, the the, the thing that we need to um, really be uh, careful about is. Exploding the, the exploding the agricultural sector in terms of growing uh, things like palm oil, which is not a food in itself, but a use increasingly in uh, in food production uh, in in a whole range of things, both from the the frying right through to essentially even making chocolates. But they're not actually staples, right? So if you're then talking about a world food crisis, the first thing you want to talk about in the developing countries is do we have staples? Right, like rice and rice. Right. And that should not be uh, convert, uh, staples that are essentially excessive staples uh, grown in the United States, economically converted into, uh, f uh, in, 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 into products that are essentially junk food and then sold and flooding the global market. So you would, you would want to see a way in which in the developing countries, particularly Southeast Asia, and particularly what the pandemic has taught us, uh, food sufficiency in the staples. So in Southeast Asia, that would be rice. Mm. Uh, most Southeast Asian countries, apart from, and if, and if I'm not wrong, uh, Vietnam and Thailand are not self-sufficient. So Philippines used to be self-sufficient in rice, it's no more self-sufficient. Filipinos typically eat three, uh, three rice three times a day, right? Particularly because it's still largely an agrarian rural e economy. They're not self-sufficient. The irony is uh, developing countries of like the Philippines 
are importing rice from the USA. So you have to change that and then you start pricing it properly so that you have a, a, a local economy in which it's priced properly, there's no wastage, there's no overconsumption, and you don't start to create this false economy where my food is so cheap and a certain segment of the, uh, the economy sort of, uh, of the population essentially consumes unhealthy amounts of all, all sorts of food and, and uh, essentially gets sick. Mm. So those two different things, we have to distinguish self-sufficiency and that the, the global production of essentially food that is convert, uh, uh, staples that are converted into essentially foods that are really processed and not good for yeah, people. Okay. So changing tax slightly, you mentioned this sickness. Now, how does this sickness affect the environment? Does the need to create more food, to underprice it, to allow mass consumption damage water, soil and air systems? Well, I think we all know, and you don't need to go into a detailed discussion here, but mm. uh, uh, if, you, if you buy into the argument that you need to grow more food, then essentially you start to need to have more access to land. Mm. And that uh, land is either currently uh, what we call agrarian land, uh, and uh, as populations grow, we essentially start to encroach on wilderness, uh, ecosystems, etc. And uh, there is a trade-off, but there's an inevitability as the population of the world, particularly in Asia, grows. We will have to essentially encroach. But the question is how much and what are we trying to grow? So food first, staples, uh, but, uh, but uh, being careful where we need to grow cash crops, etc. And that's a slightly different, uh, different topic. But you do that and you grow that so much, clearly you lose biodiversity. Mm. Secondly, we all know, and uh, or most people know, that agriculture is responsible for 70% of the world's food use, or fresh water use. Yeah. So in a world in which you can't make water, but we've already seen water, water, uh, water, fresh water shortages around, particularly for urban areas, etc. But all this water comes from essentially uh, natural reserves uh, in the wider scheme of things. You're going to be, have to be very careful how you use every drop of water. The current agricultural systems in most developing countries and oh, most advanced countries, but some advanced countries of course have the technology and the awareness mm. and the regulations, is still essentially one based on uh, using water uh, without uh, being efficient. No, There's unlimited resources. Unlimited resources. So countries like Pakistan, etc., and many parts of India, have depleted even groundwater, mm. which is the most precious form of fresh water, to extents that are essentially going to be catastrophic. So you have so there's biodiversity loss, there is essentially um, water depletion, yeah. and then there's a huge amount of water pollution because to grow this level, this uh, at, at this rate of yields that are required, where on one hand you are pricing it so cheaply, you have to grow a lot in the yield. Uh, and the yield obsession, um, then you have to have inputs. And those inputs are essentially uh, carbon inputs. Uh, and, uh, and you use carbon inputs, chemicals, fertilizers, herbicides, etc. And we all know the story from groundwater to health impacts to essentially ecosystem damage, etc. Bees, butterflies, etc. Uh, that is a disaster around the world. So we need to be very careful when we say 50% more 
and not factor in the huge ecolo uh, ecological damage. And don't think that, uh, and don't try and suggest that anyone who talks about that doesn't care about feeding the world because there's some kind of hippie who wants to save the last butterfly or dragonfly, right? So that's why I'm questioning this 50% increase in a world in which we waste so much food, but with a population by increase by 25%, the maths don't work out. And it's not simply about the maths. We're supposed to be in an era of technological advancement, etc., where we are supposed to be really smart. And I would argue that these things are taken for granted because at one level, even the people who look at this refuse to confront the, the big question we will, we will need to ask ourselves, how much should you eat? And that I know even as I say it, some people might say, oh my God, how can you say that? I would argue this is going to be a profound question. Mm -hmm. What right have you got to stuff yourself with meat, etc., or vegetables, etc., and essentially have an external damage, uh, the externality for which you don't pay, but also essentially make yourself sick and then become essentially a liability to the public coffers in terms of health Meat is an interesting topic, right, because it takes up, uh, in, terms of, in terms of land used, over 50% of all agricultural land. In fact, I think it might be up to 70. And also yeah. very inefficient uh, conversion right. of essentially fodder, vegetables, That's right. uh, which could be grown for other things. So it's a lot of fodder. 10 is, times the amount of water is needed. Yeah. So it's a very inefficient meat versus yeah. conversion rate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And water as well. Mm. Right. So it's very inefficient. And, and let, us not, let us also be clear, this is not an argument about everyone becoming vegan or no, vegetarian. Course, yeah. People can eat meat. The question is, how is that meat produced? What is the price of that mm -hmm. meat? And my God, how much? So no one has a right to eat. What are they eating? What is, this, what, what is that steak size in the USA? It's a, uh, a kilo, a pound? I mean, I don't know. But, you know, those things are just not good for human beings, right? But, the, but the, the main point is the, the externalities involved in the life cycle of producing the T-bone steak that you have, uh, which is totally underpriced. Yeah. So you can have it, but my God, you're going to pay a lot for it, just like the burger, etc. So the, the, the issue that we in the, in the developing countries will have to confront, and at the, at the global level, I think if you're going to fight climate change, you have to look at gluttony. And you have to link gluttony, which is, uh, in simple words, uh, eating too much for your own good, uh, with essentially how the food is produced and all those impacts in that chain uh, with regard a chain of uh, production to with reg uh, to climate change mm. and environmental impacts. Yeah, you've got to make that link. For some context, twenty percent of all CO two produced is from the agricultural industry. Yeah, That's so agriculture is one of the largest, mm. uh, and because it's so uh, dependent, uh, there's the destruction of ecosystems, the soils issue, and then there's of course the carbon inputs that go into it, and then there's the conversion of agricultural outputs, be it. Uh, uh, be it meat or be it uh, vegetables or be it staples uh, into uh, material, in, into food that people can eat. So that whole thing is, is uh, 20-30% of the, the greenhouse gases yeah. of the world. That's huge. That's so and we can attack that too, but that's quite often not thought about. So actually the food production system has massive impacts mm. on the planet. There's climate, there's biodiversity, there's water, 
and then there's human health. There's human health as well. So Chandran, just really quickly as a, as a last clincher to finish this off, how are these impacts going to be going to be affected by COVID? How is this going to change the food supply system and and uh, the ramifications it has on our planet and our own health? Well, I think what uh, something like the pandemic uh, hopefully does, and that, that was something I wrote at a piece three weeks ago, saying that the pandemic exposed the, the vulnerability of many countries, particularly developing countries, uh, to these food uh, uh, not being food self-sufficient. So if you start uh, looking at that, food self-sufficiency is a driver of development and, uh, and security, etc., then you start to have an opportunity to address the issues we have talked about. First, you then say, food sufficiency, what food do we grow? Which problem are we trying to solve? The one that we want to solve is to make sure that in the event of other shocks, at least our people are fed. And if there be any, and for them to be fed and and live through, say, six months of what, whatever that shock would be, then we need to make sure that there's a resilient ecosystem within the Asian mm. that allows them to do that. And and without being uh, too romantic about how people might live, uh, you want to make sure that the ecosystems operate, water, etc. But then you also say, going going forward, we want to protect. Uh, ecosystems because we know that the encroachment of human beings into uh, ecosystems is is essentially the front line of the essentially transmission of diseases from, uh, leaping from uh, animals to human beings. Do we want to do more of that apart from the fact that we also have an obligation to protect biodiversity? Mm. Then we say, you know, water is going to be a really big problem in so many of our countries. So we're going to have to protect that. So the type of food we grow, how much we grow, we have to start to essentially manage because water is the key ingredient. How do we do that? And then lastly, we say, uh, how much food should people eat so that they maintain themselves in a healthy condition? Uh, so that all of these other things we can also control, but at the same time, they are not prone to essentially illness, be it whether they are uh, prone to getting ill because are more susceptible to certain illnesses uh, and essentially impose a, a health burden on the, the economy. So those are the sorts of things that, you know, I think hopefully the pandemic has got people thinking, and uh, I'm aware already from some conversations with people I've had, the various governments in Southeast Asia are beginning to think, and, and my God, about time, that mm -hmm. they really need to think about it. And, and, and really, really tackle all of these issues by looking at food. And the, the point is food is so central, but we've always only looked at it from the point of view uh, that the fear that there is not enough food there is actually enough food. There's a distribution issue. So of course in the Sahel, it's got not going to be easy. So there's going to be a global cooperative uh, method to make sure. But in other, many parts of the world, most parts of the world, we can grow enough food. But as I say, you know, but you don't have to, we don't have to have a food supply system that uh, believes that it should ensure that you should have strawberries 365 days a year in Singapore. Uh, that is not necessarily mm -hmm. the way we should structure our food supply system. The economics are important, but the food supply system around the world doesn't exist 
to essentially let companies simply grow. Companies serve the need to provide food security. They don't exist simply to essentially profit from producing a whole amount of food, unequally distributed, that can be wasted, and also encourage gluttony. Right. Well, I think that's a good bombshell to end on. Thank you very much, Chandran. I'm afraid that's all we have time today right now, and we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Interruption Podcast. And if you're interested in GIFT, you can find us at www.global-inst.com. Good health to everyone tuning in. Thank you. We will turn you now to your regularly scheduled program. No, sir.